0: Hello and welcome to the latest USGA Green Section podcast. I'm John Petrovsky, host and education manager in the Green Section. Today we caught up with Dan Mearsman at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. We chatted about his fleet of autonomous mowers, the unique role he has at the club, and his extensive work in leadership and education. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Before we get to our discussion about some of the neat things you have going on at Philadelphia Cricket Club, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in turf?
1: Yeah, John. So I'm a third generation golf course superintendent. My father, grandfather, uncle, brother, um, either all are, you know, either used to be or or still are golf course superintendents. Um, My brother's up in Connecticut at the Patterson Club. Um, I'm currently at Philadelphia Cricket Club. Prior to this, I was at Victoria National Golf Club for a few years. Uh, a small club, Copper Hill Country Club in New Jersey for uh, about a year or two. And Caves Valley is kind of where I cut my teeth and got my training for five years down in Baltimore. So uh, from the Midwest in Michigan originally, went to Michigan State. But I've been, you know, in, in Philadelphia here for 14 years and Philly's home. And uh, it's, a, it's a great location, great membership, in and in a very dynamic club here at Cricket Club, having three courses built in three different centuries.
0: Very good, Dan. Some pretty notable stops along the way. Um, and you're at a terrific facility now and really one of the great golf centers in America and Philadelphia. Surrounded by a lot of really good golf courses. A lot of history at the Philadelphia Cricket Club hosted two early U.S. Opens, 1907 and 1910, I believe. Um, and it will at long last host the third USGA championship this spring with the four ball coming to town. Now, I'm familiar with Philly Cricket Club being a longtime resident of South Jersey. But for those who aren't familiar, could you just briefly give a history of the club, kind of how it was founded, and any other fun facts you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, you know, so it was founded as cricket in 1854. Actually, the Civil War got in the way of the founding of the club. And it was. It was a group of, you know, students from UPenn that wanted, you know, they they played at various locations, and they were looking for a home to settle down. And uh, there was a gentleman that kind of knew where the train lines were going to be running, you know, as those were getting developed and, and built out. And he purchased a lot of property in that area of Philadelphia, leased the land to those folks. They started the club and that's been home base ever since. Uh, we had an 18-hole golf course at that location that had the 1907-1910 U.S. Open. The club did not own the land still. And so over time, um, they, they that's what they wanted. In 1922, you know, at that time too, you had A.W. Tillinghass, Uh, George Thomas, George Crump were all members of the club. You know, George Thomas's name hangs in in our club championship plaques, no different than if some, you know, a regular member wins it today. In uh, 1922, they did an A.W. Tillinghast course. They had designed for 36, they built 18, Uh, they sat on the property the additional piece of property for a number of years. And in 2002, did a herds and fry course. It's really neat. I mean, Wissahickon is, I think, is in the top 30 classic courses in the United States. St. Martin's uh, Golf Week just came out with something where it's like the number two ranked short slash non-traditional course in the U.S. You can play with hickory clubs. It's amazing. Our Militia Hill course is ranked in the top 25 as well in the state, which is a very tough state. And that's our second golf course. So, and, and then you take that back and you kind of look at as a family club, which is our, our core mission, the, the amount of variety and offerings that we have for our members in golf is really amazing. I mean, it's it's kind of Disney World for private sports, really. Here,
0: the fascinating history and a long history. I could see the members arguing as they're getting founded, like which architect do we want to pick? We got quite a selection here to choose from.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then and then in addition to that, we have you know 18 grass courts, squash, paddle tennis, pickleball. You know we have a number of racket sports here too so we're kind of an epicenter for rackets as well
0: I spent some time in India in Calcutta and I've got to learn all about cricket it's part of your name is that still an offering at the club
1: yeah, we, we basically play to keep with the heritage of the club. So the, the field that they use, uh, the pitch that they use is uh, the grass tennis courts. So there's some sharing of space where in the summer season, it's set up as grass tennis courts. We get to this time of the year and they'll play cricket on the weekends. Um, and then in November, they kind of have some matches as well. So spring and fall, and then and then that's kind of when they'll they'll kind of have at their season and play some matches and some friendlies and things like that. So it's it's a good time.
0: Now, Dan, you have a dual title that we don't hear too often. Director of Grounds and Facilities, as well as Chief Planning Officer. Can you talk about your role at the club and how it has evolved and grown since you arrived in 2009?
1: Yeah, so I started as Director of Grounds. Uh, we were ta- tackling the and Restoration at that time, which was basically a rebuild of the golf course in, in just a few core summer months. Um, as we wound that down... Uh, we wanted to integrate our patio a little bit better to to host 36-hole events. We were doing some really nice memorial things around Tillinghast up and around that patio because we brought home the course on time and on budget. You know, they kind of said, "Hey, could you do this as well?" And I I'd never done vertical structures before but i said you know working with a good team of people yeah happy to try to do that we, we did that well we had a traditional general manager at that time that kind of evolved into synchronizing all the capital requests for them just to make sure we were maintaining standards of architecture and design and feel to the campus and some consistency there um our general manager then left our club and an interim basis we formed an employee executive committee just to handle some of the responsibilities the club has stayed with that model and so it's myself our cfo and our director of golf on the staff side of things but it's a it's a very uh democratic process and you know very team oriented we've worked together for for probably combined 30 years here and so obviously handling all the physical assets that kind of kind of comes in line with where are we going in the future what are we going to build in the future what do members want in the future and so that's kind of how it's kind of all come together in that way
0: yeah well it looks like things are going fantastic at the club based on some of the usga visits ahead of the four ball and I saw you are a certified club manager. Uh, what made you interested in pursuing that and ultimately attaining that certification? That's another thing we don't see too often.
1: Correct, correct. No, that's that's right. So it was, um, you know, they had some education in some areas that I was going to need, you know, based on I think anytime you're going to start to move into the vertical structure facilities, you know, you're starting to build kitchens and, you know, you're looking at dining rooms and things like that. And it was... You know, I wanted to make sure I was servicing those people as good as I could to help service our members. And a lot of their improvements were long overdue. So I wanted some some education, some areas that you wouldn't typically get as a golf course superintendent. And once I started to take those classes, that evolved into saying, hey, what's what's this this accreditation process and what would that require? You know, COVID-19 hit and a lot of those things that, you know, you used to have to travel around the country to do all of a sudden became Zoom oriented and things like that. And I looked at that and said, wow, I could I could actually do that now and go through that process and so uh, I went through that process it was great GCSA has been great CMA has been fantastic and I figured that with the added responsibility that that was being put on me as well it was probably the responsible thing to do for our membership to to say hey I have that accreditation to do um, whatever you need me to do here and so I didn't want them to feel like they had somebody that was underqualified in certain areas for that so you know I I have that uh, classification I guess if I ever need it for anything I have it Um, but uh, we're, we're really happy here at Cricket kind of doing what we're doing. And, it, and, it, and it's a great association to, to be able to bounce ideas off of other club managers as well.
0: You host first green events at the club, and you're also executive director of the 1854 Foundation. And you may be most well-known among superintendents for traveling and speaking extensively at conferences and other educational seminars. Can you speak a bit about that and why you feel it's important or if you do feel it's important for super, superintendents to get involved in education, um, outreach, and especially leadership, especially beyond their own department.
1: I, I would say it's, it's important, John, if, if somebody wants to do that, right? And, and they have to be honest with themselves on whether they want to do that. And what I mean by that is is that in, in, in club world, you know, ground staff members are up really, really early, right? Food and beverage staff members are here really, really late, you know, 2 in the morning, sometimes you know when you just look at it in your own individual or department sometimes you know uh, uh, somebody on the golf course might see somebody showing up at 10 a.m and say wow it must be nice to sleep in and at the same time the food and beverage person might look at a ground staff member leaving the club at four o'clock saying wow it'd be nice to leave at four and ultimately what happens though is when you're really truly trying to solve for for somebody's challenges you have to know and understand the, what those challenges are that means you have to invest in learning what that is and so taking that additional step from saying You know, instead of, let's say, complaining about a food and beverage operation to really trying to understand it to help them get the resources they need to be successful, there's a lot of work involved in that. And if it's not something that you would be passionate about, I wouldn't recommend pursuing that. But, you know, I think there's a lot of superintendents that are good at managing projects. They're good at managing budgets. There's a, you know, a good chunk of the club's assets are put in their trust already. And if they're proven to be responsible with that and they like the team members that they work with and they've been there a while um it's, it, it's a, good, a very good natural progression for them to uh, take that additional step. So, you know, when you look at the club's the net worth of the club, you know, I think about it's about approximately 85% of the net worth of the club is in the physical assets of which you're managing most of those anyways. So to put on the, some of the physical facilities, it's not a ginormous stretch to do that. It's more of the time, you know, you, you're probably going to have some evening committee meetings, you know, things like that you're going to gonna be at the beck and call of a lot more people. And um, as long as you're fine with that, you know, that pursuing that path is worthwhile.
0: Well, that's very well said. Well, we couldn't have you on without touching on Philly Cricket's history and also your role there. But the reason we asked you to come on today was to discuss your autonomous mower fleet that you've built at Philadelphia Cricket Club recently. So maybe start with how you became interested in using robots and first deployed them on the course.
1: Yeah, so I was interested in them the moment I saw them, right? And I think that was going back 2019 is where I first saw one. I had asked about, you know, potentially demoing it. It wasn't quite ready for demo. You know, you fast forward the next year, I think I saw one, asked again in 2020. And then in 2021, I I knew that Husqvarna had these kind of home lawn units out there, right? And so we said, hey, where could we start with this in a low risk setting? So the two areas that we had was we have an athletic field that's adjacent to our pool. And we thought maybe the pool complex itself to do that. And if you think about that, that was still when COVID was going and we started to, you know, it worked out great. It required a little like underground dog wire fence that you put around the outside of it. But what was phenomenal about it was all of a sudden we could mow that field at night. So, you know, during COVID, when everybody wanted to be outside uh, doing activity, you know, you really didn't want to have to say, hey, sorry, we're closed for a couple hours because we have to mow this thing. You know, so all of a sudden, by doing some night mowing, you really realized the benefit and the true power of being able to mow for 10 or 12 hours when you were never on property at that time. Cutting quality was good. The fact that we could program it with sports and activities all day long with no interruption, the fact that it was dead quiet, you know, as far as preserving a natural setting, those were all benefits to it. And then the one in the pool, we had so much lawn furniture in there at the time. That one just didn't work out with all the furniture in there, but um, I live in a club uh, club owned home adjacent to the club, so I said, hey, put this other one in my in the backyard that I live in, so I can watch this thing all the time. And what was neat about that was I, I, I would see like a deer standing next to this thing, right? So and I'm like, wow, that deer is unaffected by you know these robots. I'd watch it, you know, hey, we forgot to deprogram it, and it mowed some frost. You know, what's the What's the true, you know, how bad did it get or did it not get that bad? You know, I was able to watch it in a number of different settings in that case. And so at that point, I had full confidence of going onto the golf course with it. And at some point last year, uh, Husqvarna hired a couple of individuals that I knew that ran some national golf products. And I was comfortable enough at that point to when they called me and said, hey, you know, I took a new job with this company. I said, hey, I'm all, I've already been using their product for a couple years. Let's go with this. I wanted to be early on because I wanted to make sure from a service perspective, we had the attention of, of the companies if we needed service or you know special pointers and things like that, and just to help us kind of get off and running. But we have 35 units now. We have two of the Siora units. We have a whole handful of the 550s, but we're mowing about 40% of our rough with these units right now across all three golf courses. The one Siora is mowing uh, our bent grass on our grass tennis courts. Um, autonomously, that's important because that is in front of our porch where everybody dines. So that really quiets the experience there. It's been a home run for us.
0: Okay, and what's the breakdown between the models that you have there? How many big guys? Seora, for those who don't know, yeah. is the bigger model you may have seen, and then.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we have, I'm sorry. We have three sioras Like I said, the one is mowing our bent grass at St. Martin's on the grass tennis courts. We have one of those on Wissahick and mowing some pretty vast areas. And we have one of those um, at Militia Hill mowing some, some vast areas as well. And then we have a lot of the 550s. Those are smaller units that look more like a hand mower width size. And those are mowing a lot of different rough areas around the golf course. So, And again, I like, I like the 550s a lot because they're, they're small in nature. The members don't mind when they're out there. Actually, a lot of members would comment about how cute they are. But they're really quiet. And because they're quiet and small, it's almost like a squirrel that's you know kind of in your area. You don't mind it being there. And it's really taking the noise level around the club and just taking that down a whole notch. So I always say, you know, a perfect experience in nature would be our national park system. You know, if you're at the Grand Canyon, if you're at Yosemite, you're not going to do much better than that. And in golf, you're trying to take a natural setting that has some level of manufacturedness to it to, to create a golf experience. But you're trying to get as true and as pure to that national park setting as you can. And Taking the noise level down is, is a, a really kind of a final touch to that. I was just out with an architect today. We were playing. You know, I said, look, when you combine your the skill set that you have in creating the, the beauty architecturally with the skill set that we have agronomically, and then you can take this third component and taking the noise level down, you've really created just this fantastic experience where it's as close to that national park setting as you're
0: going to get. So what's the productivity of the mowers, of each mower? Like kind of, do you have an acre per hour figure?
1: Yeah, so they can do about two and a half acres in twenty-four hours. You know, maybe it's closer to two, depending on your topography, things like that. Um, Just chatting with one of our folks, you know, in a twenty-four-hour period, they were out there mowing for sixteen hours, and so we'll have them in groups of like four or five apiece. We started to implement them where we had power, so we had power at all of our clubhouses. We had power at our maintenance facility. Our club has acquired a couple properties in the last few years, so we had power at some locations that we previously wouldn't have had power because of that. And then we actually have one of their demo units of a solar powered station. So it's a solar station that can power a unit. We have a four wheel drive unit that we're working with where it can do really steep slopes. Right now, that unit still requires that like that dog fence wire around it. Um, But next year, they believe it will not. So that's that's kind of where we're at with it right now. You know, what, what people underestimate when they kind of think about it in relation to a, a wide rough unit, right, a, a typical rough unit, it's just unbelievable the productivity when you're mowing at times when you didn't have employees here. You know, so you take those evening hours, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. when, you know, it was a dry cut, it was really pretty out, and maybe you didn't have people mowing at that time. And then in the middle of the night, the fact that you can mow in the middle of the night, you're mowing 30 acres at night that you, you know, you were never mowing previously. You know, it's a, it's a different standard now when certain areas of your golf course never fluctuate in height of cut. You know, it's like shaving somebody's face. You're, you don't have clippings out there because you're cutting it so frequently that you don't you don't really have a true wide clip that's getting cut
0: off. Do you notice any change in the growth habit or kind of the overall quality of the turf from going to an autonomous mower versus a conventional rotary mower?
1: No, I would say that, you know, look, I love like the suction of of a, you know, a rotary mower that's really going hard. You know, there's something nice about that from a quality of cut standpoint, but I would say from a golfer standpoint, they have not noticed that difference and they love having that consistent height of cut. When you want to have a rough that's three inches and two days later, it's four and a half. And you got somebody in there that's 75 years old trying to chop out of that. And it's, you know, it might be wet from rain or something. They just don't want that. It's not necessary. And so pace of play is an issue. You know, we want people to find their ball and move on and keep pace of play up. And, you know, we're asking people to play these championship type courses in a decent time frame. And, you know, people want to find their ball. They want to have a chance at recovery, a recovery shot. You know, you want to always instill hope in the golfer. You know, I feel like these units do all that while preserving a, a, a really good social environment with the noise. Maybe once every couple of weeks, we'll put a rotary out there mower to get the suction that we might like. But for all the other times we're mowing, you know, we're, we're really pleased with the with the quality of cut that we're getting and the height of cut that we get all the time with the autonomous mowers.
0: Backing up, you had mentioned earlier about the mower at your at your home working around a deer are your robots pretty well behaved how do they deal with working around debris a sprinkler you know your thermone at night irrigation's running at night golf balls things like that
1: yeah we haven't had <clears throat> we haven't had an issue with golf balls we have not had an issue with um irrigation you know we heard that one place at one time you know maybe one got up under a head and it, instead of bumping away it you know just the way either the head or the unit was working that it came up, but we haven't had that issue and we have not been specialized really programming them around irrigation. So we've said, hey, let's run them and let's see if anything happens. And it has it has not happened, which has been fantastic. The only thing we've had, we had some some green traffic rope that, you know, somebody probably put the traffic rope down and it, you know, maybe at certain time of night, it couldn't tell the difference and it got tangled up there. But that was, I think, one time we had that happen. The worst case scenarios for people are very infrequent. Almost they're, they are to a point of being a non-issue when you think about when I look at the way we traditionally mowed, you know you would have issues with employees mowing. you know an employee mows over a golf ball and it spits it out the side. you know somebody gets too close to a, a creek and it gets stuck in the stuck in the wall you know in the creek bank. So it's not like what we were doing before, was perfect either in a lot of ways, you know, so whether it was the noise or some of the things that I mentioned. And then in addition, you know, these things aren't stopping to take lunch. They're not stopping to go to the bathroom. You know, they don't call in sick. They're really, really dependable. And, and um, you know, we're really pleased with what we get out of. Now, that being said, I, I should say that we did not purchase these things to cut labor. You know, we purchased these things to enhance the member experience, We have taken that labor into more divot plugging. You know, when COVID-19 hit and we saw the spike in rounds of golf, we moved to more divot plugging and putting turf in versus divot filling with soil. Plugging out ball marks, we might re-roll greens in the middle of the day. So we're doing a lot more detail work with our existing staff than we were able to do beforehand. And that's how we're kind of doing that shift. So I see these robots not necessarily being as much of a... And look, there will be some clubs that will use them to straight up save on labor, but in our market, at our club, quality of our club is what matters the most. We're using it to get better. And that's we're not using it to, to hack people's jobs and things like that.
0: That's a great point. We will hear that concern often in the green section. Um, you mentioned a frost the robot was mowing at your home during frost. Did you notice anything? We hear that kind of being, people are reevaluating whether they mow in frost and It's kind of a hot topic right now. what did you see?
1: Look, it was my home lawn setting. I'm not I'm not crazy picky over there. It, it, I really didn't see too many ill effects from that. Now I'm not, that's not an advocate, advocacy for mowing in frost or anything. And and it wasn't like it was cutting low on heavy frost. It was just saying, I, I'd see a light frost. I'd say, ooh, we forgot to unprogram that but it wasn't the end of the world, you know, then we would park it and, and put it aside and you try to be more mindful of that for the next day. But I don't see that being a big deal. I, th- I think that no different than you don't schedule your employees to go out and mow like that, you would just say, Oh, I'm going to turn these off and, and kind of keep them home for that time frame.
0: We're also often asked about what it takes to get the autonomous mowers set up at a course. Um, are you doing mostly the RTK um, kind of wireless, con- wireless boundary setting? Are most of them still, boundary wires um who who do you contact to purchase one we don't have to get into like overall cost but like what are you looking at per machine based on size kind of things like that to get going with them
1: yeah you know the 550s are a handful of $1000 a piece they're pretty they're really affordable you know i would encourage anybody that has power in an area up around a clubhouse and things like that they're fantastic for that too because that's where a lot of socialization happens activities get started really early in the morning and and they go till late at night up around your clubhouses so you know, any of that nighttime mowing you can do, those are those are easy areas where you probably have a power source close. Um, you're going to see big time benefits from having those in an area of having to keep your people away from those areas um, with loud machines and things like that. And then I would say, you know, a couple things too: clubs that have done a good amount of tree work agronomically will be able to install quicker. So, you know, just from a communication We do not have to use the dog wire anymore on those other than that one four-wheel drive unit that we were just playing around with. So, you know, and in the future, I think that's only going to get better with the repeaters and things like that. So that's going to come along very quick. Some of the patterns and things like that will be simple software updates in the future. So that was not a, a that wasn't a deterrent for me to move forward either. There was somebody that really wants to try to nitpick a decision. I, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? I was like, look, we're moving forward with this. They will get the things any any loose ends ironed out in the next couple of years. But we're not going to be on the trailing end of this. We're going to be on the leading edge of this. We're we're going full on right now. And so I think once somebody made that decision, everybody on your team goes, okay, well we're doing this. So let's figure all this stuff out. And we got through pretty quick. In some areas of your course, they'll have to go over bridges. And so I would say, you know, small things like where we had a, maybe a little lip on a bridge that probably should have been corrected anyway, so it wasn't a trip hazard to our members. You know, you really need to make sure that that was flush leading in so the thing went over it smoothly and efficiently. I would say there was a, there was probably five or six things like that that we just wanted to button up proactively before we, we, we engage with these things full scale.
0: It was great information for someone thinking about getting started with them. Did you have to adjust mowing heights or frequency?
1: Yeah, I mean, so you can kind of cut it, you know, whatever kind of almost whatever heights I would think you would want to, and I I think it says what here: 0.8 to 2.4 for a 550, right? It's one that if you wanted to go higher than that for some reason, you you just let it go and you would decrease your frequency of cut there. But for us, we've liked that height, you know. We we tend to mow frequently, so I think there was a time period maybe we had a really dry May and we started to decrease that frequency just a little bit. Just we didn't want to just, you know, let's say beat it up too much by going constantly. But like it's October right now, the grass is growing pretty good here. It's an 80 degree day in October today. It's beautiful out, but the grass is growing. You know, we're, we're kind of on a 24 hour mowing. Like I said, 24 hours means that it's actually mowing for 16 hours. It's charging for those other hours. That, that's kind of how we have it programmed right now.
0: Dan, what kind of routine maintenance is required as far as blades, battery service, other wear components, and how would that compare with a conventional mower?
1: Yeah, blades, I would say, you know, I think the recommendation is every few weeks you go out and and, and change the blades. They're small little blades that you can change out. I would say based on just the inventory of what we had, we stretched that for a while. So that, that could potentially be stretched depending on, you know, whether you had bluegrass, turf type tall fescue, you know, zoysia grass, Bermuda grass. So I would say that's going to be up to each superintendent based on what his expectations are out of that or or her expectations and then, um, you know, what their budget is. But um, that has been a pretty easy, simple process. The one thing I do like about these, almost anybody can do this work. The Husqvarna company, at least my experience has been, is that they really look at risk, you know, as far as in taking that out of play. So they're safe to be around, they're safe to service, they're lightweight, it doesn't take as specialized of an individual to do some of this maintenance. And so therefore, you, where you had like one mechanic that would do this stuff, you might have three or four people on your staff that are capable of working on these things. Our staff seems to be very interested in them. The fact that we have them at all three courses means that all, all of our guys are getting experience on them. So we didn't just want to have it be one or two people that that knew how to work on these things or knew how to knew how to deal with them. It's nice because now all of a sudden you got... 12 guys that are working on the you know dealing with these things during the day and then they're back at the lunchroom or before work or after work talking about whatever things that they're coming across and it's just been a really dynamic process this summer it's been fun to watch
0: very good yeah we had erwan lecoque on last year talking about his he might have one of the biggest fleets in the world yes yes. yeah robot mowers i think he's doing pretty much everything except greens yes he had mentioned the same thing it's he basically services them himself yep and he also has been dabbling with the solar chargers. You mentioned that earlier. His, have you been having success with that, charging the mower adequately to, to do the job?
1: Yeah, we do. We do. The The challenge with the solar charger is, is it's one unit per solar charger. So like where we have power, we, we might have five units in that general area, right? And so um, I would say for people that have a an area that I mean, they're fantastic. I mean, it'll do the job, but it's just you, you would need the solar charger, you need the tower, and then you need the mower for a single for a single unit. It's great for what we're playing around with until we can get power to the location, but ultimately we would like to get power to that location and and you know, take that solar charger and station and take it somewhere else on property.
0: You mentioned earlier the blade replacement and how different species can affect the duration of how long the blades last on a machine. You might be one of the first courses that has a robot mower and zoysia fairways i think you have zoysia on st martin do you think an autonomous mower could cut if the height was correct if it could if it was capable of cutting at the correct height could it handle cutting zoysia and how do you think that would hold up
1: yeah i'd be curious to do it we haven't done it yet we do have a siora but it's not in that general location i would be curious to see that i mean i i think it could hold up and again people have to just understand it's just battery power right so it's like You know, depending on the severity and the steepness of slopes around your golf course, you know, whether it's cool season or warm season, that's going to play a factor in battery life, you know, based on how stiff bristle the turf is, that'll affect, affect battery life. So I think it really just becomes a battery life kind of time mowing perspective versus charging, right? What's my frequency of cut going to be with this unit? And then are you going to have two or three units at a docking station? or Are you going to have just one unit at a docking station?
0: Does Husqvarna have anticipated lifespan for these models? Um, Do they have like hour meters on them? You know
1: what they may, I do not know. I don't know that off the top of my head, John, I do know that they're lasting a long time just from when they're looking at with Europe. I was with one of their folks a handful of, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago and somebody asked that question and he was almost like too long, you know, where I think that, you know, in a perfect world, they you know they they want to see you buy them at some point in time again. But
0: I think from what they're seeing, um, they're, they're lasting quite a long time. Yeah, that's that's sort of what we've heard as well. You mentioned earlier the golfers kind of get a kick out of it. What's been the overall reaction at the club?
1: Yeah, yeah, they like it. I mean, it's it's different when you see one unit versus several of them, you know, as you look around a piece of property. And when you look around our property, it's vast, right? I mean, you can see quite a distance. It's not like a, a tree-lined golf course. So, you know, you can see them in the distance. You can see them up close. And it's kind of looks like an orchestra, you know, that, that's kind of all occurring at the same time. It's almost like a production that's occurring. And I would tell you one thing that's different with our members that I haven't seen in our industry before is a lot of our members are like, how do we get these? They're interested in them for their own home lawns. You know, several members have very, you know, multiple properties. Some of them represent large institutions themselves. So it's the first time I've really seen like, hey, this is really cool. Where do I get them? And I think, for, and from a golfing standpoint, hey, we're we're all look. A lot of mem- a lot of golfers take a few hours out of their each week to go mow their yard. If they could free that up and spend more time golfing that's good for the game of golf so i you know i kind of laugh that hey we'll get you some autonomous mowers going and then you can be out here more
0: it's a win-win-win yeah yeah some of the members at ridgewood while we were at a demonstration there by todd rash kind of jokingly mentioned could we program these things to bring me a cocktail from the restaurant on the serious side do you see any opportunities to expand into something like bunker raking or other avenues where these things could help streamline golf course maintenance
1: yeah, I think the, the range picker we've already seen out there, and I think you're going to see probably several companies try to do that and incorporate that with their mowing. We're a, you know, a, a couple or a few years out from um, a range renovation here, and we will definitely incorporate incorporate those technologies into the new uh, range and some of the things we're doing around a golf performance center, a short game area, things like that. That'll, that's definitely a part of our planning. And I do think there's opportunity for bunkers as well. You know, those the 550 units have a really narrow uh, cutting height that looks kind of like the width of a hand rake. And I'm not saying it would be that particular unit, but I just feel like as an industry, that's another area that is low risk, high reward, you know, attacking a high a high labor number in our industry. You know, I think putting greens—it's—it's high—it's high risk. You know, I don't know many superintendents that would look at any autonomous technology that would come out in the next few years and say, "Wow, I'm ready to unleash this on my greens and and I'm going to trust this implicitly." But look, we started in rough. You know, if a rough unit drifts into a fairway, which it hasn't, but if it did, that's low risk. That's not going to cause any problems. If something that was scheduled to rake bunkers drifted into my rough, it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? We could get that straightened out really quick. So that those are kind of the two areas that I foresee. I I also feel like they've got some stuff coming, which, you know, helps on some steeper slopes, you know, so when you look at steep slopes around some of our green banks, you know, those were either situations where you would allow a larger unit, a driving unit to get up there and and do that. But with the, the slope, the tires would cause damage, the rough unit might cause damage. And if you said, well, we're going to get off that big unit off of there and do it by hand, well, now you're putting a human being on a steep slope on grass, which is often wet. And that's that's when you have the slip and falls and the workman's comp problems. We've seen some examples of some tight areas where we have, we're mowing them autonomously, and the turf is really recovering at a much faster rate because it's a much lighter weight unit that has been going in and out of that area all year versus our bigger units. I'm looking forward to the day when I can take some employees off of some of these steep slopes with some of their hand mowers that that's that's an area i'm looking at as well that i think is going to be helpful
0: that's a great point and something where a course could really see a benefit right away based on your experience so far what's one thing you feel autonomous mower manufacturers could do to improve the product you
1: know i think people will always be looking at cutting quality right trying to you know it's you know, you're, you're asking them to do something that's nearly impossible to have a low-powered unit do something that a high-powered unit can do, right, as far as the suction that's involved in a in a rotary mowing there. Um, I think, you know, power, how long is it mowing versus charging? That'll be, you know, communication actually is going to be clubs that haven't done the volume of tree work that we have. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of tree work ahead of them to, to get in a spot where they could do it. And then power, I think power, you know, Pulling power to certain courses would be, you know, expensive, and anything that you can do to help solve for that, whether whether it's solar or other, you know, will help cl- clubs go more widespread. But culturally, I think we're going to get there faster than what people realize. I think the golfers themselves are going to be a driver in a demand for this. I mean, you're going to see it at some clubs, and wow, this rough was cut low. It was cut nice. I could find my ball. I could advance my ball you that that member if they're a member at multiple clubs isn't going to be very tolerant of another club not having it for very long um and i would think that a lot of those people are in influential at their various clubs and i think you're going to see this start to to spread quickly in our industry
0: good stuff dan we'll get you out of here with this question kind of along those same lines but you've, you've been at it a long time you've been around at some really good clubs what's been sort of the biggest advancement you've seen? I know you're playing around with our USGA GS3 smart ball now, and you're going to start doing some more extensive data collection. But are there any other new technologies besides the robots you're currently dabbling with that you think could make a superintendent's life a bit more easy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think the autonomous mowing has been huge. I think on the construction side, a lot of the green scanning and, and those sort of things and how that has dovetailed not only to uh, construction but then also into green reading I mean a friend of mine is Mark Sweeney with aimpoint and it's as far as you know how people read greens and things like that and and I think ultimately that information helps you do more responsible golf course setups if you want to integrate those together right so I think there's been a lot of things you know some of the drone technology has been pretty neat you know I think that while it's been neat in some ways I think in other ways getting getting imagery that you're capturing to an employee to put it to good use that's been that's not as efficient as you might like it to be. Um, And I also, you know, at some point too, like a lot of our employees know the course very, very intimately. So I don't know how much they really need to lean on that information to tell them where to go versus they already know that information. So we haven't gone widespread with a lot of that. But no, I think anything that can, look, I mean, anything that can take your labor and turn it into the areas that golfers care most about. You know, if I can spend my labor on greens, fairways, tees bunkers you know things like that our golf course is going to be better and so you know when I could take people off of mowing rough and have them plugging out ball marks that's a higher value to my member than having a mow rough and if and the more of that that we can start to do you know the better off we're going to be in the future
0: Dan I'll encourage folks to check out the two seminars you'll be leading at the show in Phoenix this year you'll be talking about autonomous mowers once again of course and Another one kind of on a related topic of advancements in turf grass management. So if you're going to Phoenix, be sure to check out Dan's seminars if you have a chance. And we can't thank you enough for taking the time today. I'm looking out the window. It's a beautiful day here in South Jersey and Philadelphia, so I'm sure you're swamped. And can't thank you enough for taking the time.
1: Thanks a lot. We're looking forward to next year's four ball, that's for sure.
0: That's it for this episode of the USGA Green Section podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Keep up with our latest content on Twitter and subscribe to The Green Section Record, our digital publication covering all things golf course management.